Good evening and welcome to the 19th session of Revelation. Can you believe we've been in it for that long? We're to chapter 17 now. We had one chapter we took two sessions for and then we had introduction. So we are to our 19th session of Revelation. Glad you've joined us tonight. Good to see all of you who are here in person and all of you who are joining us online. We still have a large number joining us Sundays and Wednesdays. So wherever you are and however you may be joining us, we welcome you as well. And we are to chapter 17 of Revelation. And I, I hate to tell you this tonight, but probably the most difficult chapter to interpret in all of Revelation is chapter 17. The second most difficult to, to interpret is next Wednesday night, chapter 18. And so and then it gets better. But uh, we have two chapters tonight and next Wednesday night, probably the most difficult to interpret in all of the book. But we'll... Well, buckle your seatbelts and keep all hands and arms inside the cars tonight, and we'll try to we'll try to get through it without anybody getting hurt. So, uh, but anyway, we're looking forward to uh, to studying His Word together tonight. Let's pray together. We'll get started. Father, thank you for Your Word tonight. Thank you for the power of Scripture. We pray, Lord, tonight as we study it together, that Your presence would be here. Those joining us online. That God, your presence would be wherever they are as well. And Holy Spirit, would you be our teacher as we read through these words of chapter 17 of Revelation. Thank you for Jesus, victorious that he is. In his name we pray. Amen. All right, turn to chapter 17. I read through the ESV every week. And so uh, we're glad that you've joined us. First of all, letter A, recap. Let's look at where, how we've got here uh, the last few weeks anyway. God sent seven seal judgments and seven trumpet judgments. And now at the ending of the seven-year tribulation, he sends seven bowl judgments. And uh, the worst uh, yet on all of mankind. So these uh, all seven bold judgments listed in Revelation 16 that we just concluded and the judgments during the tribulation are similar that we've seen to those in Exodus of Israel uh, from as they're getting out of Egypt. And so uh, we've pointed out those similarities all the way through that the end times will resemble the Israelites leaving Exodus, leaving Egypt in Exodus with the Red Sea parting, God's people delivered, God's enemies destroyed. That's exactly how Revelation's going to end. God's people delivered, God's enemies destroyed. And so, a lot of similarities there. All the while these bold judgments were happening, there were, there was ar there were armies of world leaders marching toward Israel. Vast armies from Asia, uh, Ezekiel 38-39 says some from the North Africa region, Russia, and that area, all making their way in a coalition to gather at a battle called Armageddon in the Valley of Jezreel there in Israel. So we saw that last week at the ending of Revelation 16. Let me recap uh, also the bold judgments, uh, the seven of them. First one of the, uh, the bolds was the harmful pain, or rather harmful and painful sores. On those who took the mark, bold judgment number two, blood in the oceans and all the sea life dies. Bold judgment number three, there was blood in the fresh waters. And for a season, the fresh waters uh, dried up. Bold number four, the sun scorched the earth. Feels like we're in that now. Bold judgment number five, darkness over all the earth. Bold judgment six, the Euphrates River dried up and Armageddon begins 
And then we closed last week with bold judgment number seven. You remember what that was? The storm came, lightning, hail, uh, hail 100 pounds each, falling, killing people, and an earthquake that devastated the major cities of the world. That's the final bold judgment. Now we come to chapter 17, and we come to Babylon. So letter B on your outline. Let me tell you just a little bit about Babylon because we don't know whether it's real or symbolic or we don't know. And so let me talk a little bit about that. Chapter 17 tonight and chapter 18 describe the fall of Babylon. What's it talking about? Babylon, as you know, was a, a place in the Old Testament where the Israelites were in Babylonian captivity. They, it was Nebuchadnezzar. You remember Daniel? It was about 80 miles south of Baghdad, what we know of Baghdad, Iraq today. So, old Babylon is in Iraq. So, does that play into Revelation being Babylon being restored again? And will Iraq play a role in the end time? So, these are some of the things that we're going to be talking about, 17 and 18, because we don't know what does it mean when it says Babylon? Because Babylon hasn't existed as a nation or a city or a country for hundreds of years. So what does it mean Babylon is going to fall? Well, when we get to 17 and 18, uh, the chronology is no longer advanced. So in other words, it, it, chapter 12, then it follows with chapter 13, then 14, then 15. Once you get to 17, it's like an interlude. Oh, by the way, the chronology stops for two chapters and it just tells you about Babylon. So it's significant enough that God stopped Revelation for two chapters to tell us about it. So we need to try to figure out what it's talking about. So in general, stay with me, but here's what the two chapters represent. Chapter 17 represents the religious, political, commercial global system that's going to develop world there's going to be a worldwide one worldwide system and, and it's going to be the antichrist is going to control it so that's what chapter 17 is talking about tonight this one world system of commerce uh, politics government religion is going to be one world system and that's chapter 17 chapter 18 next week it's going to talk about the actual city of Babylon itself and then how it's going to fall. And we'll talk more about that uh, next Wednesday night, chapter 18. So, here's the question. What is Babylon? Several theories. One theory is that it was the Roman Empire of John's day and he was writing to that time period, not necessarily to us. That's possible that he was talking about the Roman Empire was Babylon. And that day is a code name for Babylon. He couldn't just come out and write, oh, by the way, the Roman Empire is going to fall because the Roman government would have confiscated it and it would have put those being persecuted in more danger. So he came up with code names. Babylon is the old, is actually the Roman Empire. That's possible. Some theologians, a lot of theologians believe that. Some believe that it's symbolic for some other system out there. We don't know what it is, but 
it's a symbol for something else. Others believe, a third theory, is that it's the Roman Catholic Church. Maybe there are some similarities, chapters 17 and 18, in the history of what's happened in Roman Catholicism that seem to match a little. Uh, So some say it's the Roman Catholic Church. Another theory, Babylon, is Islam. That's possible. There are things that match up with Islam. That Babylon could be the the, uh, religion of Islam. But a fifth theory is that Babylon is an actual city that's going to be rebuilt during the end times on the old location site of the old Babylon outside of Baghdad. Of the five theories, I probably lean closer to that one, to be honest with you. Um, And I'll tell you why later on. There are some verses to me that make me think that the old Babylon is going to be rebuilt into a city that will be the headquarters of the Antichrist. And that's the Babylon they're talking about, the rebuilt one that's going to be rebuilt in the, uh, in, in the last days. Now, just a side note, the name Babylon has always been a code name all the way through Scripture for a culture opposing God. Any culture that opposes God or a symbol of immorality has sometimes been called Babylon. So Babylon has kind of been a code name for that which opposes God. Why? Well, let me give you just a brief history. Where did Babylon start? Genesis 10, with the root of the name Babylon, Babel. Remember the Tower of Babel? Genesis 10, Genesis 11, humanity decided we're going to build a tower to God. We're going to build a tower to heaven where we won't need God anymore. And so they started building what was known in the old ziggurats, started building a ziggurat to heaven when all of a sudden God came down and confused their language where they couldn't work on it together. And he called it Babel. And it's where the name Babel came from because they babbled. They couldn't understand each other. And then Pentecost was a reversal of Babel where everybody heard the same language. So if you go all the way back to Genesis 10 and Babel, Babylon, it was a representative of humans trying to achieve. And so, so human governments and human achievements all through Scripture. After that, Babylon or Babel represented that which opposed what God wanted to do. Now, the name Babylon is really all the way through the Bible. It's mentioned 300 times in the Bible. It's it's mentioned more than any other city except Jerusalem in the Bible. Jerusalem first, Babylon second. Babylon representing that which opposes God. It's the backdrop of Daniel. It's the backdrop of Revelation. And if you go back to Babel's foundation in Genesis 10, if you remember who founded it, a man by the name of Nimrod. Folklore, ancient folklore developed around Nimrod that his wife, by the name of Semiramis, established a false religion there. So, 
elements of this false religion entered into mythology. And so all the way from the very beginning, Babel stood against God. So Babylon all the way through has opposed God. Keep that in mind now as we look into Babylon being described in 17 and 18. Now, let me just kind of kept you up to date concerning the old ancient site of Babylon. Where Babylon stood, uh, it was a, a system of canals and rivers and very beautiful place. Hanging gardens of Babylon, some of the, one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. Babylon is beautiful in its day. And it was south of Baghdad. You don't think of Baghdad being beautiful. Well, well, in that day, with it more, wasn't as much of a desert. It was more beautiful. But in 1980, as I mentioned last week, Saddam Hussein, as the leader of Iraq, started rebuilding the old Babylon, 80 miles south of Baghdad. And so he started rebuilding it with modern structures. He inscribed his name on the bricks. He wanted to be the new Nebuchadnezzar. Inscribed his name on bricks. He built modern palaces. And just as he's beginning to construct cable cars that will go over the new city of Babylon, war broke out and he was deposed. So that's where the construction stopped, was the cable cars starting to be uh, the, the building for those started. Well, today, Iraqi officials have reopened that site to tourism. So you can pay a tourist fee and go walk through these palaces he rebuilt, some of these monuments he rebuilt. You can see the cable car structures ready to go up. And you can take a tour of the old ancient Babylon there that Saddam Hussein tried to rebuild. I wouldn't recommend it. It's not the safest place to pack a picnic and go for the weekend. But you can if you want to go to that site. Here's something else that's interesting. The United Nations has started discussions of picking up where Saddam Hussein left off. And there is talk now among the United Nations of restoring the old Babylon as an international site and a cultural center. That's kind of interesting, isn't it, in light of Revelation in chapters 17 and 18. So that's just kind of a background of Babylon before we actually get into talking about Babylon for the next two chapters. So I, I lean to the side, more, not, not totally, but more so that as we're looking at Babylon, it's actually going to be a rebuilding, a, a restructuring of the old site that the Antichrist will come and take over as headquarters, as we saw a couple of chapters ago, of his, uh, of his work in the end times during the tribulation. So now let's go to chapter 17, letter C on your outline, the great prostitute and the beast, all 18 verses, the great prostitute and the beast. Let's read together. Verse 1, then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, this is John, come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on the Many waters. Now, who's the great prostitute? It's, now remember, it's the political system, the religious system, the commercial system that the Antichrist is going to use. This one world system is being personified as a woman. 
who is a harlot. That's the great prostitute. So it gets a little confusing, but all the way through as we talk about this woman, it's the political system, the one world system that's set up that the Antichrist is going to use. Now, the word great prostitute in Greek is interesting. It's pornes tesmegalos. You recognize a couple of those words out of there. Megalos, mega, meaning great, the great prostitute. And the word pornes, porn, pornography, absolutely. So it's the great pornographer, literally is what it means. Pornelos tesmegalos, this great prostitute that John sees in his vision. Now just as a side note, throughout the Old Testament, prostitution was equated to religious apostasy. What I mean by that is God often used prostitutes as a symbol of the Israelites worshiping other gods. Just as we are to be faithful to our spouse, we are to be faithful to God. We are married to Him. As we are to be faithful to our spouses, um, love them exclusively with no rivals in our hearts, so we are to worship God exclusively with no idols. So uh, that analogy is carried out. Israel's the bride of Jehovah. The church is the bride of Christ. Any time that, that Israel would worship other gods, he equated it to them prostituting themselves. So all the way through the Old Testament, that prostitution theme is, is used. God tells Israel, you've prostituted yourselves. You've played the harlot. So he says that all the way through the Old Testament. And then Hosea comes along as the Old Testament prophet, and God commands him, go marry a prostitute, Gomer. He's going, what? Marry a prostitute. And he said, your relationship with her is going to be a, a picture of my relationship with Israel. So all the way through the Old Testament, you have the imagery of prostitution as those people who, who don't worship God anymore, but worship idols. So it's all the way through. So he sees this great prostitute. So you know, it's apostasy against God. She is seated on many waters. Now remember ancient Babylon, system of canals and rivers and it's beautiful. So I think it's talking about a physical location. Many waters. Some say, no, it's just political because uh, many waters, that represents humanity. Maybe. But remember one of our principles of interpretation of Revelation is if something can be taken literally, take it literally. I take it literally. It was probably a location that he saw. Verse 2. So he sees this prostitute sitting beside many waters, verse 2, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. Now, what it says is, remember, this harlot is the one world system. The kings of the earth, all the earthly leaders, have been sexually immoral with her. They've all bought into this one world system. 
So there will be a unified system that all the world leaders, same currency, same religion, same political system, they're all going to buy into the same harlot, the same system. And they're going to become drunk with her wine. In other words, she's going to control them. She's going to get the kings drunk, and she's going to control them. So, this one world system will mesmerize world leaders where everybody has to buy into it. So, you see where he's going in chapter 17, verse 3. And he carried me away, this angel, carried John away in the spirit into a wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. Okay, this is getting weird, isn't it? Let's try to see if we can, let's see if we can explain it all. John is looking at this woman sitting beside the many waters, and all of a sudden this angel picks him up and whisks him away out to the desert. Now, usually in the Bible, when somebody goes out to the desert, they meet God. Moses, Elijah, John the Baptist, Paul went to the Arabian desert for three years after he got saved. Usually you go to the desert to meet God. John was whisked away to the desert to meet the prostitute. So it's a little odd. John's a little off by seeing this. Now, why the wilderness? Well, if you go back to the Exodus motif, after the Israelites crossed the Red Sea, they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. So you're back to this wilderness motif. Or it could refer to the ancient Babylon. You remember, 80 miles south of Baghdad is desert. It's wilderness. So it could be he's taken out to the old side of the old Babylon. And so he goes out there and he looks and there is a woman sitting on a beast. The word sitting on there literally means riding, like you're riding a horse. So you see this vision, you go out to the wilderness, and a woman is riding a beast. So as you look at it, she, this global system is controlling the beast. Who's the beast in the Revelation? The Antichrist. So this one world system is controlling all the kings, the world leaders, and the Antichrist. System of commerce, system of politics, system of religion is controlling all of them. Look at verse 4. The woman was arrayed in, well, wait a minute, go back to verse, end of verse 3. This beast has seven heads and ten horns. We're going to get to that in a moment. Verse 4. The woman was arrayed in purple, scarlet, 
and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls. So she's beautiful. I mean, she is dressed to the nines. Because if you were dressed in purple, you were wealthy and you were beautiful in that day. Anybody have purple on tonight? Yeah, we got a few people have purple on. Gaines has a pretty purple shirt on. If you wore purple then, you were wealthy. And you were royalty. And you were something. Why? Because purple dye was hard to come by. To dye garments in purple, you had to get snails out of the ocean. That's where the dye came from. You boil snails. So you had to import the snails. You had to boil them. You had to get the very expensive process. So only kings wore purple. Royalty. And so here is this prostitute out there clothed with purple. Scarlet was the same way. Not quite as expensive, but still expensive. So she's arrayed purple and scarlet. And she has gold and jewelry and pearls, and she's holding in her hand a golden cup. John was mesmerized, thinking it's a beautiful woman who is really dressed beautifully. And he's mesmerized. And this golden cup, but what's inside of the cup? Verse 4 tells us it's full of abomination and impurities. And sexual immorality. So the harlot, externally appealing, but inside corrupt. Now because of that, some have seen the Roman Catholic Church. Very appealing on the outside. Gold and beautiful buildings and beautifully arrayed in scarlet and purple everywhere. But inside corruption. And in the history of Roman Catholicism, there was corruption. Not always, but there was. And so some people, that's why they read Roman Catholicism into this. But so she is beautiful on the outside, but unclean on the inside. Now, if you remember, Satan has always tried to counterfeit God. You have the unholy trinity of the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. He tried to mimic the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And the enemy always tries to counterfeit what good God has. And some people see a counterfeit to God in this. So she's out there and she's beautifully arrayed. Verse 5. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery. Babylon the great. Mother of prostitutes and of the earth's abominations. Back in Roman times, prostitutes wore headbands. And on their headbands would be their name. You knew which prostitute it was. Men would know who they're with, the name of the one they're with. Uh, those who controlled the prostitutes would know, as they had many, many in their harem, they would know exactly who they are, had their name written on headbands. So that's probably what it's a reference to. Beautiful woman has the headband, and written on the headband is her name, Babylon. The great mother of prostitutes. She's going to be the mother of all harlots. And she will encompass all kinds of apostasy and uh, things against God. Verse 6. Listen to what John said. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs, 
of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled greatly. Even John was mesmerized. He thought, wow, this woman is stunning. She's beautiful. She's attractive. She's appealing. Who does she represent? The one world system. It's going to be attractive. It's going to be appealing. It's going to be something everybody's want to go. They're going to want to go to. Now, notice it said that she was drunk with the blood of the saints. If you remember, whenever John wrote Revelation, Domitian had persecuted and killed many, many Christians. And so a lot of people see this as, as Domitian's killing all of these believers and it's the blood of the saints that she's drinking. She's drunk on, there's been so much blood of God's people spilled uh, that she is drunk on this, the blood, drinking the blood of believers. And then when I saw her, I marveled greatly. But notice verse 7. But the angel said to me, why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and Ten horns. The beast that you saw, verse 8, the saw that was and is not, and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction, and the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. Okay, those two verses are pretty confusing, aren't they? Let me explain. If you remember, go back to chapter 13. In Revelation 13, if you remember, one of the things the Antichrist is going to do is he's going to die and fake a resurrection. Remember that? Supposedly die. Everything God did, the devil's trying to mimic at the end times. Jesus died and rose again. So the, the Antichrist is going to be supposedly be killed and rise again, come back, and everybody in the world is going to be just, oh my goodness, how marvelous he is. We must follow him. And so it appears that this is a reference again to the Antichrist who, will, who was supposedly dead, resuscitated, and will impress everybody on earth that he has now risen from the dead. Let me give you just a quick side note. If uh, you remember in history, you may not remember this in your, in your world history whenever you were in high school. It, do you remember Nero's death? Nero persecuted Christians unbelievably. You remember how Nero died? Yeah, nobody else does either. Because there is controversy surrounding it. There's a theory out there called the Nero Ravidius theory or myth. And here's what it says. Nero never really died. Supposedly, he was going to commit suicide by throwing himself in the Tiber River, but he chickened out. So he came back. There was a revolution against him because of the high taxes among the people. And one of the 
one of his opponents rose up against him, formed an army, and they're coming to get him. He knows he's about to die. He's, he's met his end. So he couldn't get enough courage to throw himself in the Tiber River, and so he decides to kill himself, stab himself, but he couldn't get enough courage. And so he has one of his soldiers stab him, and he dies. But nobody really saw him after that. But everybody says, Nero's dead, June 9th, 68 uh, AD, he died. Nero's dead, first emperor to commit suicide. But nobody can find him. So a theory kind of arose that he didn't die, he escaped to Parthia. And that one day, one day, Nero is going to come back again with the Parthian army behind him and take back over. And Romans always kind of believe that in the back of their mind. So now you have, at the end time, somebody who supposedly died. Oh no, wait a minute. He resurrected. And he's got an army to come back to lead the charge. And that's why some people believe Nero was the Antichrist. But Nero never came back with the Parthian army. So now here, the Antichrist is going to do exactly what some said Nero would do. So it's kind of interesting to play on words as you go through here. Verse 9. This calls for a mind with wisdom. So in other words, the angel tells John, John, in order to understand this, you have to really be wise. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. So this beast has seven heads. Who could these seven heads be? Well, let's see if it tells us. Verse 10. They are the seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other's not yet come. And when he does come, he must remain only a little while. All right, think about this. Seven kings, five of them have died, one is alive, and one hasn't come yet. But when he comes, he's only going to reign a short time. Okay, let's look at the world empires. Five have been here. Egypt, um, uh, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece. So before John wrote, those are the five. Come and died. One is, he says, Rome. And then it's going to die, and there will be one more coming at the very end for a short time. So we have Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece. They all died. They all persecuted God's people, by the way, every one of them. Rome is, right now, as John is writing, they persecuted God's people. And then the one to come at the end, there hasn't been a world empire since Rome. There will be at the end that it will rule for seven years. And every one of them persecuted God's people. Seven kings, five died, one is... And one will come. It's pretty clear he's talking about the world empires. Go to verse 10. 
They are the seven kings, five of them fallen, one is, one is not yet. And when he does come, he will remain only a little while. Some people say that these kings are the European Union. Because there are ten kings, it says. Seven from seven empires. So the last one, they say, will come from the European Union. There are 27 nations right now, part of the European Union. There are only going to be 10 at this time. So some people say either the European Union is going to shrink or it's not the European Union, one of the two. So I just thought I'd throw that theory because you will hear that from time to time. God will allow them to reign a short time. Verse 11. As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven. And it goes to destruction. Verse 12. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour. That means the short period of time. Together with the beast. So these ten horns are going to unify. Maybe European Union, we don't know. Going to unify. They will ally with the Antichrist. And they will serve for one hour, just a short period of time of history, the seven years. Then we go to verse 13. These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. So in other words, all the nations of the world are going to want one thing, the harlot. What's the harlot? The one world system. So all the world leaders are going to want one thing, a one, this one world system. So they're going to give their allegiance to the Antichrist in the new Babylon who will be able to give it. So that's what the end time is going to look like. Verse 14, they will make war on the Lamb, that's Jesus, and the Lamb will conquer them for he is Lord of lords King of kings, and those with him are called the chosen and faithful. Remember, that's Armageddon. That was described in chapter 16. So John just in one verse says, by the way, they don't win. This coalition of nations, Jesus wins in the end, the battle of Armageddon. Verse 15. And the angel said to me, the waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations. And languages. So that tells us there's going to be a one world system, religious system, that will control all the nations and the peoples during the, during the tribulation time. What could, be a one, what could be a one world political system? Well, that's why some people see Roman Catholicism. That could be. Could be Islam. That's what some people see as well. What, what one world religion would be so pervasive that it would control the whole world? So those are the main two religions right now that people point to as to what verse 15 could be talking about. Verse 16. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast, will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her with fire. So what happens now? These nations that love this one world system, that love this prostitute, will turn on her and hate her and destroy her. So all the world leaders that love the one world system at one time will begin to hate it. 
and turn on it and turn away from it, burn it with fire. Verse 17, for God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. You know why I love verse 17? Verse 17 tells me that even when things are out of control, God is still in control. Because whenever things are at their worst, you have, you have nations that are coming together, one world system, and, and nations that are, and it looks like God's people are being persecuted, and they are, and it looks like God is totally out of control. Verse 17 says, oh, by the way, this is all still God's purpose. <laughs> His purpose is even carried out through the tribulation time. And then verse 18, and the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. So the woman is Babylon. Now, this was really confusing tonight, I know. Well, the next week is a little less confusing, but this is the most difficult chapter. Let me wrap it all up with a scenario. I'm not saying this is how it's going to happen. I'm just saying imagine Imagine the Antichrist is from Russia. From the north, Ezekiel 38, 39, Gog, Magog, kings from the north. Let's just imagine it's Russia. He is a Russian despot, rises to power, and he aligns himself with, let's say, the Islamic religion, the oil-producing countries that are wealthy. So he adopts Islam as his religion and as his culture. He's, he is the world leader and all the world looks to him. And he rakes in billions and billions of dollars generated by oil. We're imagining. And then whenever he turns against Israel, which he will, the Bible says the Antichrist will, he finds immediate support from all of Islam, radical Islam, those that fight against each other, all of radical Islam and all of Islam comes together to support him because they all hate Israel. So they're all with him. But then, after a while, he doesn't want their interference anymore. Because he's gained power. He's bigger than they are now. He wants to be worshipped. And he wants to be praised himself. So he flings off Islam like an old jacket. Strips them of their wealth, renounces it, rejects it, and he's in control. Just a way of seeing the plausibility of all this. I'm not saying that it's Russia. I'm not saying it's Islam. I'm just saying imagine with me. But when you see that scenario, you can see how something like this could happen. One more thought, I have about a minute and a half. This is even more interesting to me whenever you read Islam's account of how the world ends. Do you know how Islam says the world ends? How the, what they teach? They teach that their Messiah will come. He's called the Mahdi, M-A-H-D-I. Mahdi literally means rightly guided one. Their Messiah is going to come, called the mighty. 
He's going to appear at a time in world history where there's great chaos, and he's going to bring out of all of this chaos unity. And he's going to establish the Islamic kingdom where all the world will follow him. And he will institute Sharia law in all the world. And the world will live in peace. That's how Islam teaches the world will end. You take that in consideration with Revelation, you can see plausible scenarios taking place. But we know Jesus returns to earth. God will decimate the power and the empire of the Antichrist. And Jesus will reign as Lord. And that's what we'll start talking about two weeks from tonight in Revelation chapter 19. Well, again, it's 7 o'clock, out of time for questions or comments. But again, if you want to visit with me afterwards, you can send me emails. I'll be glad to respond to those. Let's close together and pray, pray together and we'll close. Father, thank you again for your word. Thank you that in the midst of so many things we don't understand, we do understand this. Jesus is Lord. God is victorious. And God, everything is in your control And we trust you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. God bless you. See you Sunday.